Hello and welcome to a time of edification with Caruso Ministry. Get ready to be edified and equipped to edify others. Ready? Let's begin. We've been on um, the series, Intensity of the New Creation Continued. Intensity of the New Creation Continued, track 11. All right. And um, to, we've looked into a lot of subjects. I don't have so much time to do a recap. All right, but last the last thing we looked into was justification, our justification in Christ Jesus, or our declaration of righteousness. And so this um, tonight we are going to be looking into sanctification, right? Sanctification, glory to Jesus. Sanctification, praise God. And I know that when you hear the word sanctification, there are certain things that come to your mind already. When you hear the word sanctification to sanctify, all right, one of the things, of course, that comes to your mind primarily is that it is to make clean. All right, to make clean. And while that is not entirely wrong, to think that is all there is to sanctification is to be making a big mistake. And I've told you before, when it comes to Bible subjects, or when it comes to Christian topics, our evidence must be from work. Second Timothy chapter 3, from verse 16 to 17. It says, all scripture is given by inspiration of God, and is provided for doctrine, for reproof, for correction, and for instruction in righteousness. The word reproof there. Is the Greek word elekos, E-L-E-G-C-H-O-S. And elekos means evidence. You see the same word used in Hebrews 11 and verse 1, where it says, now faith is the substance of things hoped for, the evidence of things not seen. And why is that important? It's important because when it comes to anything concerning our Christian faith, we expect to have evidence concerning it from scriptures. You see, our evidence concerning our Christian faith is not from superstition. It's not from one man said something somewhere. All right, the, our evidence for anything we believe in the Christian faith has to emanate from the scriptures. All right, has to emanate from the scriptures. And I thought something yesterday in KBC, you know, Lagos, where I said in First Corinthians 4 and verse 6, we can often make the mistake because the translators, you know, puts the word of men there. We can often make the mistake where he says, um, these things have been a figure transferred to myself and to Apollos for your sake, that you may learn in us. First Corinthians 4 and verse 6, you can open your Bibles there. First Corinthians 4 verse 6 says, These things have been a figure transferred to myself and to Apollos for your sakes, that you might learn in us not to think of men above you know, what is written, that none of you be puffed up one against the other. And I said that the translators were the ones who put the phrase of men there. And so when you read that verse, you can almost be forced to think, it's saying, don't think of men above what is written. And while that is right and that is correct, that is not the entirety of that verse. Because in reality, the word of men there is in Italy, so it was not the originals. The translators added it there to aid your understanding. And so if we were to remove or we were, to, we were to do away with that word, a better way to read it would be, um, um, these things have been a figure transferred to myself and to Apollos for your sakes, that you may learn not to think above what is written. So it's not just saying, don't think of men above what is written. It's saying, don't have a mindset or don't have a thought pattern or don't permit a thought pattern that is above that which is written. Meaning you are not allowed to think concerning anything in the Christian faith above the confines of scripture the boundaries of my um decision or the boundaries of my suggestions or the boundaries of my theologies about any matter all right that has to do with my faith which of course you know in relation has to do with my life can only be from scriptures in other words there is no such thing as let's leave the bible and be practical that's not possible my being practical is using the bible that's it the only way I'm practical is when I use the Bible. That's the reality for me. I am not less practical when I use the Bible. The Bible is all there is to my practicality. 
That's it. I am not permitted to have a mindset different from scriptures. You know, well, you know, for example, the Bible teaches that, you know, marriage is honorable with the bed on the fact. That is my mindset whether I'm in church or when I'm not in church. That's my mindset when I'm, I'm, among, I'm among believers or when I'm not among believers. You know, that particular criteria does not change when I'm talking to folks around me who are not unbelievers. That's still, so there is no, it's not that when we are discussing about premarital sex, then as I discussed, one of my friends, you know, one of my friends now says, uh, okay, agreed, agreed. We know what the Bible says about this thing. We know, we know your, you know, your mindset about this thing. But, you know, let's be practical. No, there's no such thing. Or in fact, when you say let's be practical, yes, let's be practical. My practicality is still in the world. So me being practical is me telling you that marriage is unable with bed on the fact. That's my practicality. All right, so I cannot be more practical than scriptures. That's it. That's the mindset you must always have. I cannot be more practical than scriptures. And so when it comes to the story of sanctification, all right, we do not teach just based on our experiences. We don't teach based on our experiences. Experiences are not bad, all right. In fact, experiences sometimes can be good. And in fact, you should do your best possible to ensure that the experiences you have are in alignment with God's work. But the reality of it is that you don't teach from your experiences. As I said yesterday, you don't teach from your experiences, not just when your experiences are bad, but even when they are good and, and they are in alignment with the word. For example, if the Bible says you will lay hands on the sick and the sick will recover, all right? And you lay hands on the sick and the sick recovered. You understand me? Even in that scenario, you still don't use your experience to teach. You still teach with the word. You understand me? So now, when you teach about the healing power of God, you don't teach about the healing power of God because you've seen the healing power of God, right? You teach it because it is in the scriptures. Are you with me? Then you can now buttress with your experience to know that these things which you speak are real. That is how the believer teaches. That is how the minister of the gospel teaches. And that's one of the reasons why it is absurd when the minister of the gospel is teaching. And 80% of your teaching is examples from your personal life. It's wrong, actually. It is. I believe that one of the training you have to learn to give yourself as minister of the gospel is to learn to teach God's word for God's word. Even when you have the experiences that you can use to buttress it. Ensure that as much as possible you can emphasize the word. If I think that there was a particular place in my life, you know, while I was teaching God's word, when I decided I was not going to use examples, I was not going to teach the word as it is. Simply the way it is. And I think it's a training that you need to do to yourself from time to time. Right? Because certain times, in times when, you know, particularly when it's a topic where you think you are doing well in, for example, when it's a topic like prayer, you can almost be forced to begin to, and maybe, for example, you have a very consistent prayer life or a consistent prayer devotion. You can almost be forced to teach prayer based on your experience. I want to tell people about how you wake up in the morning and you never miss a prayer time. And when you miss a prayer time in the day, you try to cover it up in the night. And when you miss a prayer time today, you try to do times two of that tomorrow. All right. And while that is not necessarily bad, what you are doing at that point in time is that you are teaching from your experiences and you are not emphasizing the logic of God's word. All right. Your, your response as the minister of the gospel when it comes to Bible teaching should be primarily the word. Even if your experiences are aligned, you should read the word first and then your experiences following. That's how it should be. And that's the consistency, for example, you won't find in Jesus. All right? I said all that to just say, as we study sanctification tonight, we're not going to try to explain sanctification from our experiences. We're not going to try to explain it from the things we have heard before or the things that we know or, or I think. No, no, no. We're going to look at what scripture has to say. Glory to Jesus. All right, so let's look into the bible and we're going to be starting from the old testament that i'll study tonight all right you see when we say when we talk about the word sanctification i mean pretty pretty simple it is the process of being sanctified all right or it, is, it means to be sanctified and it's a word in the hebrew kadash q-a-d-a-s-h kadash q 
Q-A-D-A-S-H, Kadash, all right? And it means to consecrate, all right? The word sanctification, it means to consecrate. It means to set apart as halu, all right? To set apart as halu. You know, if you've heard the song before, by means of that your back, where he says, from the rising of the sun to the setting of the sun, meaning is to be hallowed. All right, the word hallowed there it means you know to repair, all right, to 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 esteem as holy. That, that's the meaning. And so the word sanctification, or in the Hebrew Kadash, it means to set apart as hallowed, to consecrate. It means to dedicate, all right, to dedicate. And so why a lot of us would naturally think that. The word sanctification means to make clean, all right? That's not necessarily what it is. When you hear the word sanctification, in fact, in Scripture, particularly in the Old Testament, one of the first that should come to your mind is a setting apart to be, you know, a setting apart to be hallowed, or a dedicating unto something, all right? Or to consecrate. You know, somebody used a very beautiful illustration a while ago, and he said, you know, you know, do you realize that when we talk about the most holy place, all right, the holiest of all, you know, the mindset of the holiest of all we have, that is not exactly accurate. Why? Why so? Because you see, when we are told about the things that are done in the outer court, the innermost, the outer court, the holy place, and the most holy place, or the holiest of all, we are told that it is in the holiest of all that the high priest goes in with the blood of an animal. He goes in there, all right, and then he sprinkles blood upon the mercy seat for the atonement of the sins of the nation of Israel. Now, imagine that you have a place or a seat that blood is being sprinkled on once every year once every year imagine how the place is going to look like after say for example three or four years i also think about the fact that nobody else is allowed to go into this place and more importantly you only go there once a year only once a year if you if, if you try to go there you know first of all you try to go there i know a priest you most likely end up dead in fact, when you if, in fact, when the person who is a priest goes there once a year to offer sacrifices, if he doesn't sanctify himself before going in and offer sacrifices for himself, the reality of this is that he's going to die there. And in those days, what they used to do is they would have chains and they would tie, tie around the legs of the priest. And so as the priest is walking, they know that you know when the priest walks, the chain is shaking, so they know he's alive. And so when they notice that in a, you know maybe for a period of time, they are not noticing any shaking or any movements with the chain anymore. They, that means chances that the priest is already dead. And because nobody can go in to bring him out, they use that chain to pull him out. So that was the reality of the holiest of all. So now, imagine, for example, that it's called the holiest of all or the most holy place, a place that was sanctified for God's worship, all right? A hallowed place. Guess what? It wasn't the finest place to be in. I promise you that it probably would have even been smelling. In a place where you are sprinkling blood, you sprinkle blood seven times, and then you walk out, and that's it, till the next year. Promise you that's not going to be a very interesting sight to behold. But guess what? It was called the most holy place. The most holy. So clearly it's not most holy because it is neat. It's not. It's not most holy because it's a nice place to live in. Or almost holy because the nice, it has a nice scent and aroma to it. Not necessarily. Alright? It is the most holy place because that is the place for communion between men and God. Simple. Is the most holy place because God has chosen it to be the most holy place. And you see, this is one of the things that you need to understand about in Christ's realities. The moment you understand that in Christ's realities are realities that God has decided to impute upon a man. That's it. In the same way we saw justification, that a man cannot make himself justified. He has to be declared justified by another. He has to be declared righteous by another. The same with sanctification. 
So if you continue to seek sanctification from the lens of the one who is sanctified, then you are wrong. Then you are wrong. All right? You are wrong. You have to see sanctification through the lens of the one who imputes sanctification to another. That's how to see it. All right? That's how to see it. Let's go. And so let's see examples in the Old Testament of where the word sanctified or the word kadash, Q-A-D-A-S-H, was used. Look at Genesis chapter 2 and verse 3. Genesis chapter 2 and verse 3. Please open your Bible. Genesis chapter 2 and verse 3. Thank you, Lord Jesus. Genesis chapter 2 and verse 3. Thank you, Lord Jesus. Thank you, Lord Jesus. Mandra Tego Bala Master Tabaha. Genesis 2 and verse 3. And verse 3. He says, And God blessed the seventh day and sanctified it, because that in it he had rested from all his work which God created and made. He says, And God blessed the seventh day and sanctified it. Now, if the idea of sanctification you've always had, first of all, is something that you know is to make something clean. What did the seventh day possibly do? That it became unclean. No. You know, in fact, the day in itself cannot do anything. A day is neither good nor bad. So it's not as though the seventh day had done something that made it bad, and then something has to be done to make it good. No. So when he says that God sanctified it, all right, he explains how God sanctified it. You notice that if you're in the KJV, there's a colon after after sanctified it. He says, because that in it he rested from all his work. From all his work which God created and made. So, how did God sanctify the seventh day? Because he dedicated that day as the day of rest. As the day of rest. And I don't want to say this, by the way, which should influence generally your study of the book of Genesis. All right? Now, when you see, for example, that scripture says that God rested on the seventh day, one of the first questions you need to ask yourself is, can God get tired? Can God be tired? Because I've heard people, you know, people can, people can be very funny, you know, this, for example, is one of the reasons why you should know that in certain books, you cannot explain some things literally. It makes no sense. It makes no sense. Because the same Bible says that he that keepeth Israel neither slumbers nor sleeps. All right? So, if he neither slumbers, all right, that means he does not doze, neither does he sleep. Why then does he need to rest? He is God, he is eternal. Do you understand me? He is God and he is eternal. He cannot be tired. Is omnipresent, is omniscient, and is omnipotent. He cannot be tired. All right. So clearly, when he says that God rested on the seventh day, there was something being spoken about there. And interestingly, when you open up your Bible to the book of Hebrews, when you read Hebrews 4, it then begins to explain, all right, that what is spoken about here is actually the rest for the people of God. It was a figurative expression to signify the rest for men who have come into, you know, who have come into salvation. All right, and that's also what was typified in the Sabbath. All right, because also in the laws of Moses, you realize that on the seventh day was the Sabbath. And you notice that in, in, you know, in the Ten Commandments, it, one of the things that Moses said very, very importantly was um, to ensure that he kept the Sabbath. Go to Exodus 20. I don't want to just quote that from my head. Go to Exodus, Exodus 20. All right, and um, look at verse, verse 8. He says, remember the Sabbath day to keep it holy. He says, six days shall thou labor and all thy work. He says, seventh day is Sabbath um, of the thy God. He says, thou shalt do work. Um, thou, thy son, thy daughter, nor thy maid servant, nor thy maid servant, nor thy castle, nor thy stranger that is within thy gates. He says, for six days the Lord made heaven and earth. 
and all that is in them is, and he rested the seventh day. Wherefore the Lord blessed the Sabbath day, and what did he do? He hallowed it. How did he hallow the Sabbath day? He separated it as a day of rest. All right. And now, don't get you wrong. Don't think that what he's saying here is that God has said that you know we're going to work for six days, and then on the seventh day, all right, um, the seventh day is probably a Saturday or Sunday. That's the day we're going to rest. That's not it. First of all, let me just clear that that was not it all right first of all is that this was the law of moses this was written to israelites and it was given by moses all right that's by the way number two is this is that what you can learn however is that god created man to walk and then to rest all right but he created man to walk more than rest clearly all right but more importantly when you now see that he says that god rested on the seventh day and we know that god does not sleep neither does he slumber you have to know that then there is something being spoken about them and as I said before, in Hebrews 4, it, it speaks about a rest that remains for the people of God. All right? It says that if Joshua had barely, you know, brought them into that rest, he says God will still not have promised them a rest. All right? Because God still um, um, spoke about the rest in Psalms chapter 95. You know, in Psalms 95, God brought a rest for the people of God. And so, the writer of Hebrews was saying, if they had received that rest, because Canaan land was supposed to be in a sense, or Canaan, the land of Canaan, was supposed to be in a sense the land of rest from the, for the children of Israel because they are journeying through the wilderness. All right. And Joshua was the one who brought them into Canaan. And so, if after Joshua brought them into Canaan, all the way in the book of Joshua, in Psalms 95, God still says they remained the rest for the people of God. It means that Joshua, which interestingly in the KJV is called Jesus actually because of a poor translation, that means Joshua in in the book of joshua did not actually bring them into that land of rest all right even though he brought them into canaan they were not in rest because they remained the rest for the people of god and what is that rest he that is saved assists from works in the fact that because when a man is saved he is saved by grace through faith not of works that is the rest that is the rest he's referring to that is the rest for the people of god god has done all the work the man in christ now rests so you do not try to work to get into salvation no you get into salvation in rest. That is Sabbath. So in reality, when you know when Moses was saying in the Ten Commandments, remember the Sabbath day to keep it holy. All right. What he was saying figuratively is that um, keep in mind or put in mind that era of salvation. It's actually a meditation upon that which God will do in salvation. I don't want to go into that. That's another very long study. You know, but I think I've told you guys this before. That there's a clear distinction between the laws of Moses and the commandments. That God has redeemed us for the cause of the law, being made a cause for us, for his written cause is everyone who is who, who hangs on a tree. So it clearly tells you that um the law has a cause. Are you with me? With the law comes punishment. If you don't do the law, there is a punishment, all right. But clearly, when you read through um the book of Exodus into Leviticus Numbers and Deuteronomy, you clearly see the things that had punishments with them and the things that did not. Clearly, the Ten Commandments have no punishment. Read through, no punishment. All you see is that shall not kill, that shall not commit adultery, that shall not do this, that shall not do that. No, there was no punishment. It's until it is after you are done with the Ten Commandments and then you begin to go into the law and you now hear if you do this, you get this. If you do this, you get this. If you do this, you get this. So the Ten Commandments in themselves cannot be, of course, you can call them loosely the laws, but if you are being particular, you cannot call the Ten Commandments the laws because they do not have the they don't have the cost in them, they don't have the punishment. And if I'm not going to put this to you, and you can do well to explore later on, that what you actually see in the Ten Commandments is a typification of the gospel. 
That's it. It's a typification of the gospel, actually. What you have in the Ten Commandments is, uh, is an imagery of discipleship. So, Jesus, sorry, so God had delivered the Israelites out of bondage into what? He had delivered them from Egypt out of bondage. He was to bring them into a place of rest, Canaan. And does that look like the salvation story to you? Having delivered us from the power of darkness and translated us into the kingdom of his dear son, in whom we have rest. That, so, Israel was supposed to be a typification or an imagery of the work of salvation. That God delivers them from the Egyptians and then brings them, can you see that? Brings them into rest, Canaan. And that's the reason why Canaan was, you know, like if you read the story of Abraham, God promised Canaan to Abraham's descendants, all right, while Abraham was alive. I'll put together. And here is something interesting. When God spoke to Abraham in Genesis 12, God said, Go to a place I will show you. Now, when you read the book of Genesis, it looks like as though the place that God was going to show him was Canaan. But by the time he got there, God then told him that I will give this land to your children and children after you, right? Because the iniquity of the Amorites has not yet been completed. And then he left there and went. But at the end of the day, his descendants were still going to come back to Canaan. Why so? The book of Hebrews now tells us something. It says Abraham was looking for a city whose builder and maker was God. Meaning it was the land that God was going to show him was not a physical land of rest as in canaan it was a spiritual location and that was what he was looking for and that's the reason why he says that of whom it was testified that they were strangers and pilgrims on the earth they were strangers and pilgrims on the earth because the work of salvation that which they were actually looking forward to was not a physical habitation of rest it was a spiritual location of rest which is what salvation by the spirit of the living god that was the city whose builder and maker is god and that's the reason why in the new creation all right we are we have been built as an holy habitation unto God by His Spirit. All right? That's it. We have been built upon the foundation of the apostles and the prophets, Jesus Christ Himself being the chief cornerstone, of whom the whole body fitly packed together and compacted by that with every joint supply it. Make it increase of, um, of body unto the edifying of itself in love. I think of that to just say that in reality, what Abraham was looking forward to when God told him that leave your father's house also a place I will show you. The place that God was going to show him was not Canaan that is it looks like it but it was god preaching the gospel to him in an imagery the real place that god was going to show him was actually the place of salvation that's the reason why the book of hebrews says that of course they without us could not have been you know made righteous they without us could not have received they without us could not have received the promise he says he was looking for a city so even after he got into canaan he was still looking for a city whose builder and maker was god what is that city it is the new jerusalem the city of the living god all right the innumerable company of angels, the church of the first one. All right. Glory to Jesus. So that's by the way. So all the way back to, to Genesis 2. All right. So what God does there was the fact that, you know, just in, you know, when people say that God rested on the seventh day, all right. There was, it's just something you have to think around. Okay. Um uh next year's KBC, we are most likely going to be teaching about salvation. All right, in next year's KBC. And I may or may not do another study on Genesis. All right, may or may not do another study on Genesis. I don't know if we are ready for that yet, but let's see how that goes. All right, so Exodus 19 from verse 20 to 23. Go there. Exodus 19 from verse 20 to 23. He says, And the Lord came down upon Mount Sinai on the top of the mount, and the Lord called Moses up to the top of the mount. And Moses went up. And the Lord said unto Moses, Go down, charge the people, lest they break through unto the Lord's gaze, and many of them perish. Can you see that? He said, The priest also which come near to the Lord sanctify themselves. Let the Lord break forth upon them 
And Moses said unto the people, The people cannot come up to Mount Sinai, for thou chargest us, saying, Set bounds of about the mount and sanctify it. Now, if you see where he said that the priests should sanctify themselves, you might think, Oh, maybe he's telling the priests to sanctify themselves because they've done, they've done something bad. All right, so that you know something evil is not going to happen to them. But look at what it says in the last verse. It says, "Set bounds about the mounds and sanctify it." So it's saying, "Set bounds around the mountain." And how do you sanctify a mountain? What could a mountain have possibly done that makes it bad and it needs sanctification? No, the mountain was to be sanctified because that was the place where God and man was going to meet. All right, the glory of the Lord was upon the mountain. All right, Moses was communing with God upon that mountain. And as the reason of that, it was that mountain in that sense was now dedicated unto the use of God. And so that mountain was not was no longer a normal or natural entity. It wasn't normal. It wasn't like any other mountain. You could climb up any other mountain as you want. But this particular mountain, if you climb up, if you climb upon it, you're going to see something else. You're going to see something else. And you see, this right here is the reality of, and I don't want to get up, um, far, far ahead of myself, but this is the reality of the new creation. You see, New creation special is not that a new creation in itself can do something. No, it is that God has chosen that his abode is on this one. That's the thing. So you need to understand the difference between you and your friend who is unsaved is not that there's something about you externally that is different, it's that God has said that this one is the one that is my own. I have chosen to endure this one. I've chosen not to endure vessels of clay or temples that were made. I've chosen to endure this one. So while naturally from a natural perspective he doesn't look different if you come across this one the things you can possibly do to another one and get away with it if you try to do this one you're going to see something that's the reality that's the meaning of sanctification and as i'm going to show you very soon one of the ways to look at sanctification is a setting apart as the reason of the work of salvation is setting apart of the believer from the world when you look at the subject of sanctification one of the things that must ring to your mind is this i'm not like the rest of the world not like the rest of the world. And one of the ways we see that a lot of times, one of the, when we hear that, one of the ways we primarily think about this is in terms of sin. Oh, I'm not like the world. I can't just do the things the world is doing. And that's true. But guess what? There are more important things to understand in sanctification than that. Do you understand me? I'm not like the world. I have the ability to do things the world cannot do. That's the way to look at it. I'm not of the world. I've got the spirit of God and the world does not have it. I'm not like the world. I've got the joy of the Holy Ghost and the world does not have it. I have been separated as the reason of the as the reason of the sacrifice of Jesus. The sacrifice of Jesus that I've received has become a demarcating line between me and the world. That's the way to see it. We're going to get there very soon. All right. Look at Leviticus 8 and verse 12. So when we hear the word sanctify, all right, what comes to our mind first should not just be oh, making something clean. While that can be true, the first thing that must come to your mind when you hear the word sanctify, sanctification, all right, is, is to set apart onto something, to dedicate, to, you know, to separate as halu. That's what it means to sanctify. Leviticus 8 and verse 12, it says, And he poured up the anointing oil upon Aaron's head and anointed him to sanctify him. So I'm very sure that an anointing oil cannot wash a man clean. It can't. It can't. Right, but he poured oil on his head, all right, signifying his priestly ministry over the nation of Israel. And guess what he says? He says he anointed him to sanctify him. So the point of oil on his head was the sanctification, meaning as a reason of the oil poured on his head, something had now separated him. He was no longer like any other person in the nation of Israel, he was now set apart for the ministry, all right, of the nation of Israel. And guess what? As a reason of that anointing upon his head, he is now fit to enter into the universe of all. 
and a place another man cannot dare enter. Now, here is the interesting thing. If, as of five minutes ago, before oil came upon his head, if he tried to enter the oldest of what he would have died. But now, there is oil on his head, not necessarily because he has changed, not necessarily because something has happened to him, or maybe he has become a better person or a nicer person. This same man, now that oil is on his head, he can enter into the oldest of all, and then he can make sacrifices for the entirety of Israel. What's the difference between the man now that can make sacrifices and the man five minutes ago who would have died in the oldest of all? It is the anointing on him. It's not because there's something special about him. No, it is the oil on his head that has sanctified him. That's it. So you must understand this. And that's why I always say this. When it comes to, you know, spiritual matters, there are spiritual laws. All right? And by spiritual laws, I even mean when it comes to subjects like, for example, the new creation realities. There are spiritual laws. For example, your sins are not blotted out because you said sorry. It's okay that you feel guilty. It's okay you feel bad. And in fact, it's okay that you felt bad enough to apologize. But guess what? That is not what takes away sins. Apologies are not the, are not the, is not the power of God unto salvation. The gospel is. And the wages of sin is not guilt. It is death. Do you understand me? So if you are going to pay for sin, you have to die. And that's the reason that way out of sin somebody has to die so you either die or jesus died for you it's simple do you understand me so it's not a function of oh i'm sorry it's not about whether you're sorry or not we know you are sorry but the point of it is this there is a way things are done it's a spiritual law it is and that's the same way it is with sanctification things are not done yet the way you want it to be done there's a principle it doesn't matter you know now here is another interesting thing it doesn't matter if there's another person in the nation of israel that we felt was not qualified Aaron, as soon as oil is upon Aaron's head, he is the one that is now fit. Simple. That is the sanctification. And you see, this right here is also part of you know something to keep in mind when it comes to the, the work of ministry and honor. One thing you have to recognize is this. See, let me say something. You know, you know, every now and then I remind myself of this thing so that it gives me common sense. God doesn't call a man because he understands the word. No, God calls a man. The man can now either end up understanding the word or not. But God called him. So that you don't think that because of the knowledge of Hebrew and Greek, there are so many you can talk at or talk against. <laughs> Let me say something. Imagine, for example, you know, a lot of times we like to um, talk about, we like to, you know, boast about, for example, our zeal for God's word, our zeal for prayer, our zeal for evangelism, and so on and so forth, which is very good, by the way. But, you know, if you have been honest with yourself and you sit down and analyze certain things, there are certain men that, when you come across them, you ask yourself a question. What exactly did this person do that made God call him? For example, imagine you're Jeremiah. And then one day, you know, you're going about, you know, your duties, right? Whatever it is. And then an angel comes to meet you and says, and, you know, you hear the words of God that says, you know, I've ordained you, I've appointed you, I've ordained you, a prophet to the nations. And he says, before you were born, I've ordained you. Before you were formed in the womb, I've called you a prophet to the nations. Now, just think about that. Before you were born, I would need you. <laughs> you know that? Before you were even formed in your, in your mother's belly. This is what I've, I've called you a prophet's nation. So now you need to understand the call upon Jeremiah's life is not because Jeremiah is a nice guy. You know it's not because Jeremiah is the most fabulous guy in church. Even though Pharisee is good, by the way. But the reality of it is that God called him because God called him. It's called the election of grace. And the earlier you learn this, the better. From people, you cannot see. <laughs> you know. I had a discussion with a friend of mine a while ago, you know, a, a minister of the gospel, a young minister, by the way, a very close friend of mine, you know, who, by the way, flows very heavily in the healing, in the healing anointing. 
And we we're discussing something a while ago. And I said, at some point, we arrived at the pastoral conclusion and we said, see, man of God, the reality of this is this. While prayer is good and faith is good, and we continue to teach on those things, he said, the reality of this is this, is that you have certain men that God just gave them. And there's, it's not, there's nothing you can do about it. Do you understand me? God, you know, there are certain kinds of, there's certain kind of um, operations that, it's not that you were trained. God just gave it over to a, to a person. That's just it. For example, when you have the story of a man who he's giving birth to, all right, a man is giving birth to, and then at the point when he is still in the hands of his parents, a light shines through the window upon the baby. Now, what what prayer does the person pray in tongues, or what tongues did the baby pray? Sure, that's not my point. What tongues did he pray? They don't worry that. See, God just put grace on their head. That's it. Just that my point. There's, there's no, you, you, you can't be, you can't have more than one Paul. There's just only one Paul. Just, there are people like that that God just gave it over to them. You can't do it. You just can't. It doesn't matter how much of the world you know. You are not the one that was sent to the Gentiles. God sends this one. That doesn't work. And there's a way he's going to operate in it that will be so easy. You just can't do it. You just can't. And the earlier you learn this, the better. It's one of the things that this is going to do to you. Is that it's going to teach you humility. It's such a humility because you know there's nothing we can do that God did not give us. Of course, this, this does not mean you should be complacent about the, the your devotion and saying it's not like if God did not go give me, there's nothing I can do. No, there is a place where Paul says, of course, in first Corinthians 15, that I am what I am by the grace of God. All right, and he says the grace of God was not in vain. He says, because I labored more abundantly than they are. So there is a place in accordance to the grace of God upon your life, you are now laboring, and that's very important. But in reality, let me tell you the truth. There are certain persons, you even if you sit down and tell yourself, I'm just pay attention to them. You know, this one, this person is this one is not just that somebody can pray, there's just a grace upon this man's life. It's not just that, it's not, it's not um that's just it. God just gave it over to this person, just it. And the more you, the earlier you learn it, the better, so that you don't kill yourself. All right, so while of course you can emulate things. In certain persons, like for example, when I said that mean, that friend of mine who I say, for example, flows very strongly in the healing anointing. Now I'll be very stupid to now say because he does this, I'll do it too. God didn't give me that. That's not what God asked me to do. I'll not focus on what God asked me to do. I'm going to be flexible in it and I'll keep growing there. And he will keep growing. Now, if he also will be wrong to still do something and I'll say, ah, because my friend is doing it, I should also do it as well. You know, we don't do ministry like that. You don't do ministry as far. Ah, this, this is what my friend did here. This is what my friend did here. Then I'll do it to know. What of course we can look at certain things and learn from them and even get advice as regards certain things and adopt certain things. At the end of the day, for the core things in the work of ministry, it is simply by the leading of God's spirit. So you don't just do things because ah, this person is doing this now, this person is doing it now. That's the reigning thing. So we do our own. Everybody's doing camp meeting. So what should we do? That's our own camp meeting. So we'll call it we'll call it thank God. The our own name is already is different. Most people don't know it. So by the time we just put our name and put camp meeting, Keruzo camp meeting, finish. Put like I say ye. And the good thing is that we can even be shorting everything. K C M, K B C, K something something. <laughs> you don't be doing K, nobody will be blessed. There's no, you that you, you cannot force God's hand to move. I have already told you before that what we've been dreaming about church people is that they will always be so blessed. Every meeting, whether they were blessed or not, how, how was it? I was so blessed, sir. But you just know it down. Nobody was blessed there because God's hand you know, is not in this thing. All right? So what you can do to help yourself is this, is that, see, just do what God has told you to do. Stay in your lane. Stay in your lane. And that's the reason why in Galatians 2, you know, Paul said something very interesting. He said, when, when Peter, James, and John, who were pillars of the church, he says, when they came around, he says, and they perceived 
that the grace of God was working in midst of the Gentiles, just as the grace of God was working in Peter towards the Jews. He says they held their peace, meaning Peter could recognize something upon Paul. Do you understand my point? He, he, could, he knew what he saw. And the reason he knew what he saw was because he, he was working in something like that. I mean, Peter was a man that Jesus had committed the future of the gospel to. That he had already told him, if you love me, feed my sheep. So there was something already working upon Peter that was obvious. You couldn't argue with it. It was clear. But now, Peter sees another man who has such an entry to the Gentiles like never before. The moment he saw it, he knew what he saw. And so that's the reason he held his peace. He says, let, let them continue to preach to the Gentiles. Because he knew that there was an oppression upon that man that was towards the Gentiles. And the earlier you learn this, the better. So I said, oh, that's just you see, God sanctifies men for himself by his call. He places his call upon men as a means to honor them. And that's it. And I honor December this year. Right? Life of honor. All right. God places honor upon people. He places his call upon them to honor them. And you'll be doing yourself a huge disservice. If, as a reason of your knowledge of them in the natural, you don't receive them as the way they are by God's spirit. You won't receive what God's supposed to receive. And guess what? Other people will be receiving. That's some, that if, if that's a very that's something I've even been coming to learn as a minister. That there are certain persons who they will never be blessed by you, not because you don't have the capacity to bless them, but because the, their minds are just not open. And it feels so bad because, and the reason it is painful is because there are people who They've never met you before. They just have an encounter with you once and they receive a miracle. Because they, they, they don't know you before. The only way they, the only thing they know you as is pastor. And because all they know you as is pastor, there is a receptiveness, receptiveness in their heart and they can receive. But those people that have known you for years, they have known you for a while. They know you when you were growing. Do you understand me? It's, they are too, I don't even know the words to use. They, they are too, maybe wise, maybe too grown to honor you as a man of God. And there are situations happening in their lives that your anointing can fix. But nothing is going to happen. Why won't anything happen? Because they are not receiving in the name of the prophets. And so they won't receive a prophet's reward. It's that simple. It's that simple. And it's something I'm going to have to learn the time as a minister of the gospel. That you cannot help a person that doesn't want to be helped. There's nothing you can do. If they don't receive you as a man of God, they will not be healed. There's nothing. Do you understand? And that's really you can have two people who come to, to you. The same situation. You pray for one. One gets healed. Pray for the other, the other doesn't get you. And child, like the one that you pray for that doesn't get you is the closest to you. Happens a lot. Saying it from things I've noticed from personal experiences and things you even find from scripture. The prophet is not without honor, but in his own country. I tell God to just say, God sanctifies. So we see sanctification in, in ministry, we see sanctification in salvation. Sanctification in ministry, in what sense? That God picks a man and upon him, and that's it. That's God has set him apart. And you had better help yourself by esteeming that man as one that has been set apart. Don't just talk at him anyhow. Just on me. And that's one of the reasons why I, I thank God for where I was raised. I thank God for where I was trained. And that's one training I always invite people. You don't talk about men of God. Don't talk about men of Max. Ah, down. He's a he's an heretic. He's a this one. He's a that one. He's a real. Must you talk? That's on the core. Shut up. All this pastor said. Shut up. Shut up. Don't talk. Check this out. Don't put yourself in problems. You hear me? You do see, let me tell you something. As long as, even if it's a thought in your mind, as long as you've not said it out yet, you never put yourself in a problem. But you see, the moment you utter certain words, you put yourself, you need to understand how important the words of your mouth are. By the words of your mouth, you brought yourself into salvation. 
You believe in your heart unto salvation, you confess with your mouth. You believe in your heart unto righteousness, you confess with your mouth unto salvation. So imagine that salvation, you, you literally ushered yourself into salvation by the words of your mouth. By you saying, I believe in the death of Jesus, you brought yourself into salvation. So now imagine, all right, that you are saying things you're not supposed to with those same mouths, with that same mouth, sorry. With that same mouth. And that really says the power of, 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 sorry, the power of death and life is in the tongue. It actually is. It actually is. Because clearly, the power to give you eternal life is in your tongue. You send yourself into eternal life by believing the gospel and affirming it with your mouth. You brought yourself into eternal life. So you had better watch the kind of words you say. Don't just talk funny things about men of God. That's like things you don't know about. Shut up. All right, shut up. That's how to walk in the spirit. You see, you see, being led by the spirit of God will not always lead you to talk. Sometimes being filled with the spirit will lead, will lead you to keep quiet. Telling you, sometimes you are filled with the spirit, shut up. Don't say anything. Don't say anything. Times and talking, saying a lot of things, you just don't say anything. So now that's what it means to be filled with the spirit. All right? That's what it means to be filled with the spirit. Let's continue. All right. So now there are other places in scripture in the old testament where the word kadash was used, not just for sanctify. All right. Um, for example, the word kadash was also used for holy. All right. So these are other words for so here's something interesting, all right, about the Greek, um, about the Greek um grammar. Sorry, about the Hebrew grammar. Now compared to the Greek grammar, which is a, a bit more um a bit more uh what's the word now, a bit more evolved, all right. In the Greek, for example, you could have nouns verbs so for example katatismos is a noun and katatizu is a verb all right now it's in a it's in a language like greek that you have those distinctions in a language like in the hebrew usually a word could be used just one word be used as a noun and the verb do you understand me so you don't have the noun form or the verb form so for example stantification is a verb sorry is a noun to stantify should be a verb all right and in the greek usually they would have separate words for those all right that are derivation of themselves. However, in the Hebrew, sanctification and to sanctify is the same word. Do you understand me? It's the same word as holy, kadash. So whether noun or verb, it's still kadash. Q-A-D-A-S-H. So let's where the word kadash was used for holy. Look at Exodus 20 and verse 8. Exodus 20 and verse 8, just as we saw before. It says, remember the Sabbath day to keep it holy. How do you keep the Sabbath day holy? Very told you, do not do any work. Separate that day. As a different day. That's how you keep it. So it's not interesting that the way you keep it holy is by not doing anything. You, you know, the, the idea of holiness we have is to keep the Sabbath day holy. Maybe that's the day, you know, you you born to rally. That's the day you be wash yourself. You wear new clothes. You not do the, you, you know, you won't lie. You won't steal. So it says, so the way you keep Sabbath day holy is by not doing anything. Are we together? So, the holiness there is not about whether it is clean or not. The holiness is that it is separate. That day has been made separate unto God. Meaning on this day, we don't do any work. All right? On this day, we honor the day in reverence to God. That's what it means to remember the Sabbath day. All right? And so, if Sabbath in our own day now refers to the era of salvation, the era where man has ceased from works in order to be justified, when Moses says, remember the Sabbath day to keep it holy. What is he saying? Moses is saying, constantly in your heart, honor the work of salvation wherein you are. Because the Sabbath day for us right now is no longer the last day, seven days. The Sabbath day for the new creation is every day of his life, as long as he is saved eternally. 
That's our Sabbath day. My Sabbath day, my Sabbath days for as long as my sacrifice is upon the mercy seats, as long as Jesus, the mediator, is constantly making intercession for me, to the end that I no longer have to intercede for myself. That is my rest. That is my Sabbath day. And so I constantly remember that day. I keep it holy. How do I keep it holy? I constantly revere in my heart the work of redemption that God has done for man. That is how to remember the Sabbath day to keep it holy. Hallelujah. Glory to Jesus. Look at Exodus 29, verse 37. Exodus 29, verse 37. We're going to round up now. All right. Exodus 29, verse 37. He says, Seven days shall thou make an atonement for the altar, and what? Sanctify it. And it shall be an altar most holy. Whatsoever touches the altar shall be holy. Can you see that? He says, Seven days you shall make an atonement for the altar and sanctify it. Shall make it, he says, and the altar then shall be most holy. So the altar is then made most holy. Now, here's another important thing that we've now seen also about holiness. That holiness is something that you don't do it by yourself. Notice the altar doesn't make itself holy. No. Another declares or makes the altar holy. Why? And why is the altar holy? Because the altar is set apart to the benefit of another. So, for example, how is how was the mountain or how was Mount Sinai holy? Mount Sinai was holy because God was on it. God was using it. So it is holy for that cause. Do you understand me? What made Aaron sanctified? Aaron was sanctified unto God because he became an high priest for the nation of Israel unto God. So when we see holiness, we must not see holiness in the lens of what is made holy. We must see holiness within the lens of who that holiness is unto. Because that is actually what qualifies that entity as holy. I'm going to say that again. When we see holiness, we must see holiness within the context of who that holiness is unto. Because it is who the best, it is who the holiness is unto that actually qualifies that entity as holy. Alright, so um, the altar is holy because it's an altar unto God. Aaron is sanctified because he's an high priest for the nation of Israel unto God. The message is or the holiest of all is the holiest of all because it is a sacred place, alright, separated unto um, sacrifices for the sins of the nation of Israel unto God or for the nation of Israel unto God. So when we hear holiness, don't think what it, so that would even mean from this perspective, when we say that a man is holy, the man could not have made himself holy. He therefore becomes potential to say, um, you know, you know, do your best possible to become holy. Try to be holy, try to stay holy. It's not it's not left to you. What makes a man holy is that he's separated onto another. So if we are going to want a man to be holy, what would we need to do? Would need to Whoever it is that is going to have that responsibility is going to have to make that man separated unto God. Once the man is separated unto God, then that man is declared as what? Holy. Is declared as sanctified unto God. Hallelujah. Glory to Jesus. Thank you for listening. We're sure that it was an amazing time. For questions and inquiries, Reach out to us on carysoul.mini at gmail.com. We call you blessed.